Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor in chief of Modern Retail. And this week, we have Nicole Eccles, the founder and CEO of Glasshouse Fragrances. I'm really excited to talk about the world of luxury candles, which is something I've always wanted to. I, I guess I have a few luxury candles in my house, but I don't have many. And I know that they're very popular of late. And I'm excited to just talk about all that stuff. But Nicole, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so happy for you to be here. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here, too. So why don't we start from the beginning? How did Glasshouse begin, and what were you doing before? So Glasshouse started uh, in 2005. I moved to Sydney, Australia for a sea change and got a role there in um, as the head of corporate sales, which was my background. I was in sales. And it was while I was shopping for fragrances and body products in general, that I realized that Sydney just did not have, or Australia did not have, the brands that I was used to. I mean, I came from New York, which is arguably arguably one of the biggest beauty brands, beauty markets in the world, and then moved to a country where there was very little. And so then I had this idea that I was going to create the world's finest fragrant brand. And and that's how that's how it started. And so uh what was your background with fragrances and all that stuff before? Well, my it was sort of I have always been obsessed with fragrance and scent. I have an incredible olfactive memory. I'm the person that can walk into an elevator and identify what someone smells like and what they're wearing even if I'd only smelled it once 5 years ago. And it's just this skill that I've always had and I worked in cosmetics before I went into corporate sales. Um, I went to school for marketing and left there. I worked in an ad agency very briefly because it was an administrative role and I was terrible at it. And uh, then decided to go follow my passion, which was cosmetics. And I was the makeup artist for um, Saks Fifth Avenue here in New York City um, for a few years. And then I left there and went into corporate sales. Wow. And so what was your sort of plan to market in 2005? It sounds like you were you were walking around Sydney and you said there I, there's a real hole in the market here. I'm going to launch a company. So what how did you go about that? Well, it was very interesting because obviously my background was in sales, so I understood that part of it, but you know, everything from creating a business plan to finding investments, all of that needed to be vetted and gone through. And it was really, really an interesting process for me because not only did I have to do all of that, but most people in my position that have a lovely idea for a brand and uh, in a particular category that exists as things do in Bath and Body and Candles can go to a contract manufacturer and make any number of things. But in Australia, they didn't have any contract manufacturers for candles, which was our first product. So not only did we have to map out or did I have to map out a business plan for the brand, I also had to map out a business plan for manufacturing. Wow. Because we started with our own factory. And we've since moved four or five times because we needed bigger facilities. But yeah, it was uh, a pretty interesting process. And then I had to get investment which I did. And I have a wonderful business partner. We're still privately owned. And um, Work and I own the business. Wow. So pretty much you built out 
all of the manufacturing, all of that backend yourself in Australia. Um, and can you, was that a whole educational process for you? Did you know anything about vetting it, building that out? Was that, you know, do you feel like, I feel like if I were doing that, I would feel like I'm getting constantly screwed over at every step of the way. (laughs) (laughs) It, It was, it was, it's really hard when you do something from scratch, you don't know what you're doing. You can't afford to pay anyone to really help you. So you, it really is a matter of trial and error. And in the beginning, we're very small. So, you know, month one, I think we made a thousand candles. Most of that was done by hand. Um, our first candles were terrible. They burned terribly. They smelled great, <laughs> but the the way they were burning and it, it was just, it was a mess compared. To, I mean, now we make world-class. I mean, our products are comparably some of the best in the world, if not the best, but that took 15 years of trial and error, bringing in the best candle makers I could get my hands on, flying them out to Australia because they're not there. And it was tough. It was really, really tough in the beginning because I didn't know anything except sales or how to go about that. But the manufacturing side, it was it was really interesting. I I had a team. The investment required was not only to pay, obviously, for overheads. It included, uh, in operations, it included a staff. And, you know, we were working on this together. And there was a lot of late nights. And as you would expect in, a, in an entrepreneurial sort of startup situation. All right. So I want to I wanna do an abridged 15 years because uh, you're expanding to the U.S. now. Or you're in the, you've been yes. expanding. So how did how did the... Uh, how did you grow in Australia and what were sort of like the, the major milestones that you hit that led you to to expand to the U.S.? So I have always wanted to create a, a global fragrance business. When I started Glass House in Australia, I had just moved there. I had been there. The business was started within a year of me moving there. It was very, very quick. And I was not yet fully Australian or understood Australian people or their consumer preferences. I wasn't familiar with them, but I knew Americans. And that was the market I came from and also had worked in and where I was trained. So the brand I built was actually positioned for an American market, not for an Australian one. And it just so happened that the taste profile, the product, it was all very aligned. So I was extremely lucky because the Australian people seemed to, well, loved the product just as much as I know the Americans would. So it was always in the plan that I would build the business in Australia and then we would go global because you've got to get your home market right. And certainly there's so much complexity. We make everything in Australia, shipping it, the legals around um, all of that. So that was always the plan to be a global business and to really challenge some of these institutional brands that get big and they stop thinking about the customer and they become very generic. And we try to do fragrances and and things that are that are innovative that people want and they want to try because they haven't seen anything like it before. That's really important to us. So, um, and and world's best products. So. We needed to get to that point before we could say, okay, we're ready. And we were ready years ago. But the reality is, is 
scaling to come to the U.S. was very difficult because we have grown a very big business for our for our category in Australia. And it took all of our resource just to supply that market and mm-hmm. to service that market. So did you have a rubric or benchmarks in mind of when we reach this amount of sales, when we have the, these types of products, then we'll expand globally? What was it that made you say, this is what we're going to, this, this will make us do the jump? It was definitely a full product assortment. So I knew when I started Glasshouse, we started with a candle because in my mind, that was the biggest gap in the market. It was always that I wanted to build this. Uh, what I really was trying to do was build a beautiful upmarket Bath and Body Works because as a consumer, I was sort of tired of Bath and Body Works. I wanted something that was more elevated, more um, just was more me. And I wanted to wait till we had that full assortment of product categories to move into new markets because I was worried that if I went before then, that we would only be known for a certain product. And we're not just a product, we're a brand. And so that was the big thing that I was waiting for. And that came with the launch of our Eau de Parfum, which happened a year ago. And we launched uh, Eau de Parfum right at the start of the pandemic. It was crazy. March 2020 is when it when the products launched. And they had been in the works and development for nearly two years, you know, just to get to that point. But that was also the time where we said, okay, now, now we're ready. We're going to start expanding to the U.S. And that's exactly what we did. So it's been a wild ride, obviously, for a lot of businesses and certainly for us expanding during a, a pandemic. But 70% of our sales is in home fragrance right now. So you can imagine it's been really fortunate for us because a lot of people are staying at home, working from home. So consumption and particularly the categories that we play in have gone up, which is which has been a godsend. Yeah, I want to get into all that. So what, just still keeping a little bit in the past, what was your product expansion roadmap? So it started with glass, uh, with candles, then it went to what and sort of how? What, okay, what? so we started, we started with our triple scented candles. Okay. Then we went straight into bar soaps. Okay. That we call body bars. Then we went into fragrant diffusers. Mm-hmm. So that was our next product. Then we went into hand cream, hand soap. So we started, we started, we became more intimate. Then we went into body lotion, shower gel, eau de parfum, liquid. Then we started to went a little bit back into home fragrance. So we make these incredible liquidless diffusers. And then you start getting into sizing. Then you start adding sizes. So we have 100 SKUs in our core range. And that's just core because we're also big on animation. So we do summer. We do an incredible summer collection. We do a winter collection, fall, winter. We do Mother's Day, this incredible Mother's Day collection, and also Christmas. So we have 100 SKUs in our core, but then we're also animating. So we usually do about 40 incremental SKUs on top of that 100. What was the primary sales channel in Australia? Was it in store? Like sort of how did you grow that? Or was it, yeah, walk me through that. So we started and built our business with independence. And I think when you're, there's a few reasons for that. First of all, 
obviously the entry or bar- the entry barriers are low because you're dealing with the owner operator and it's easier for them to take a risk because they don't have a bunch of locations they don't really care about you know they're not depending on big advertising and big brands to draw traffic they might be in a shopping center or near a local area where a commerce area where people go to buy their groceries or so forth so we were in beautiful gift homewares um, apothecary style cosmetic stores. And that's how we started. And I remember pitching and going straight to big department store at the very beginning. And they said to me, I remember them saying, you know, look, we really love your product. We do agree that there's a gap in the market, but um, no one knows your brand. So we're, we're just not ready. And I said, that's fine. So we probably then stayed in independent bricks and mortar distribution for maybe three years. And then we went and started scaling into much bigger retailers because at that point there was quite the buzz and people knew about the brand and they were going into store and asking for it, which is how we then, we expanded. And I remember the buyer at David Jones, which is the department store in Australia. There's two of them, David Jones and Meyer. David Jones is probably like a mix of, I'd say, Saks and... Uh, Nordstrom. Okay. And I remember them, the buyer there and George Bingham, and he's still a great friend of mine. And he said, look, I I get the impression that your product's very gifty, but every girl on the floor, every female on the floor in my department knows your product and they love it. So I'm going to give it a go. And I said, okay, fine. We're going to put it on indent, which means they just bought a certain amount for Christmas. And I'll put it into the cosmetics floor and see what happens. And I said, thank you, because that is all I needed to happen. I didn't care. And soon as it went in there, that was it. It was flying. And we, after that, went permanent. And we and so that is obviously a great relationship, a great account that we have. So you, you mentioned earlier that you want to be the updated Bath & Body Works. Have you ever thought about opening your own stores? How, what, what is your thought about that? Because I feel like people think of Bath & Body Works very much as a destination as well as a brand you might find elsewhere. Yes. So for many, many years, retail outlets were my vision. I had drawing. I had designers that created them. I have I have all the beautiful um roadmap, the roadmap to get to build that channel. And that is what we were absolutely going to do. But what ended up happening for us in Australia is because we're so well known and because our distribution is so broad. And when I say broad, I don't mean we're everywhere. We're not everywhere. We're quite exclusive. But Pretty much there isn't a place that you can go in Australia where you can't find a store that sells our products. So then it became, well, what's the role of a retail store? And that was very much about, for me, brand experience. We do have one small store in a a center called Macquarie that does very well for us. But it became, for me, about how do I support our retailers if I have a store right next to where they already are. Because a lot of these guys, like I said, we built our business in conjunction with these wonderful people. And I did not want to undermine their business. And I felt like when brands are too widely distributed, I think it's a bit of a problem, particularly in luxury. So we just, we just, didn't, we just didn't do that. Now, in this market, though, 
might be might be completely different. So I'm looking at lots of different ways of achieving great distribution here, but also making sure because brand experience is so much of so much a part of what we do and the impact of the merchandising. So that's something we're definitely thinking about. So let's go into here. You said March 2020 is when you officially launched in the U.S.? No, March 2020 is when we launched the Eau de Parfum. Okay. We only launched in the U.S. in July, middle of July this year. So a oh, couple wow. months okay. ago. Okay, so it's brand new. What? Brand new. <laughs> brand new. So what, 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 is, what was your launch plan? What were the channels you were focusing on? How did you, you know, what were the things that needed to be in place to pull the trigger in July? Well, in my mind, the first thing we needed to do was get our .com right, make sure our .com was working and built properly. So we did that. Um, I opened an Amazon store because I believe that is uh, where a lot of our consumers are. And I wanted to make sure it was executed really well because we are a luxury brand. So we did the Amazon store. And now we are growing in independent boutiques just like we started in Australia, which has been wonderful. And we're kind of doing more of an organic build. We're not trying to just be everywhere and get mass distribution right away. We're happy for it to slowly build while people get to try us and experience our brand. Um, we are a luxury brand. We, we don't want to be everywhere, but we don't want to be too difficult to find either. We don't want to be so niche that it, you you can't find our product. We want it to be accessible to our consumers. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Walk me through the, the Amazon decision because I think that's fascinating. And you mentioned how brand experience is so important specifically for the Glasshouse customer. How can you control the brand experience at Amazon, which is such a sort of commoditized transactional platform? So you can't control, the one thing I don't like about Amazon is you can't control the unveiling of the product when it arrives. When you order on our website, it arrives, it's beautifully tissued, there's messages in the package, it's perfectly packaged, it feels like a real experience when you open that box. We can't control that on Amazon, and that's unfortunate. But we do have our own Amazon store, we do manage the site ourselves, I do have a team looking after it. And it's a difficult one because the products that we sell are consumable. They are not one-off products that you, you don't replenish. Our customers are diehard fans. Once you're in the brand, they tend not to leave. And I wanted to make sure that it was easy for that consumer to get a hold of our product, particularly because there's so many Australians also living here in the U.S. and they are all over the country. So that was just more about um, our sort of, you know, replenishment channel more than an acquisition channel. Um, but, you know, if, if someone knows our brand, they can choose if they want to come directly to us and have that experience by buying directly through our .com or in one of our retail partners or going to Amazon. But it, I know it's a tough one. A lot of people ask me and, and they kind of look at me with two heads, but in a way... I've come from a different market where I think Amazon's the best thing on the planet. Where I was in Australia, there's no, Amazon is there, but they're not really functioning at the high caliber they are in this market. And there isn't really an equivalent. And as a busy executive, I don't know what I would do 
without Amazon because I literally, whenever I need something, I just jump on the phone and I just grab it. And I feel like in a, in a way for a real avid user of our products, like I am and like a lot of my friends are and cons- our consumers are, it's just a convenient way to get the pro- their product. So what were the primary marketing channels you focused on in the U.S.? Did you do a big Instagram campaign? Are you doing anything like that or is it just all organic? So, no, no, no. We are working on um, an Instagram campaign. We started our Instagram. We're building that up. We have a PR agency that we work with. Um, we have an influencer agency that's doing organic, organic sort of traffic there. We're not really, you know, call, we're not going to call Kim Kardashian's team and <laughs> send product over. I, I, I don't really believe in that. We're, we, like I said, we're privately owned. It, that gives us a lot of room to sort of try things and feel it out and see what's working. And, and, um, so that is, you know, the brand, it, brand awareness is our number one job to be done. And we're going to do that through a combination of social and also distribution and our distribution over time. Mm -hmm. Are you, I I would be, I feel like products like specially nice candles probably are, live in a zeitgeist that would do well on something like TikTok. Have you ever thought about that? Or like, I want like, how do you, how do you think about content creation specifically for uh, organic finding on social media? Well, TikTok is an interesting, uh, an interesting social media channel and it is something that we thought about, but I'm also conscientious of our demographic and their age. And I think they're sort of, uh, well, I know they're sort of 25 and up and our products are beautiful. And they're, you know, I I feel like we have to get Instagram right first, then we can work on other social channels. But it's definitely something that I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking about in terms of, so you're at Independence, you're selling online, you have some other channels. When are you going to try and and rear your head into, into major U.S. distribution? Or is that just sort of waiting and seeing? Like what, what, what would need to go right in order for you to say, now I want to get into Nordstrom? Well, I think that um, we could trade with any number of the of partners like that. Um, one of the great advantages of being an established business like we are is we have the resources and we have the ability to service those bigger retailers, and we can. So it's all about having the right partnerships. And I think, like you said, there are some really amazing retailer partners that would work well for us, particularly as a new brand in the U.S., um, and we're we're thinking about all of that right now and working on all of that right now. So the independence, uh, you know, I have a team here and they've started working on that right away. But there are uh, lots of other things in the pipe that we're, that we're fostering. Are all 100 plus SKUs available in the U.S. or only just a few? No, 100 plus SKUs, they're all available here. So, and we, ha- we keep a warehouse here and uh, replenish our warehouse. Yeah. So how has that how has that been going? Because specific are they all manufactured in Australia still? Everything everything's made in Australia. Um, it's no. I mean, everyone listening probably knows that they sea freight has been difficult. Uh, there are lots of delays. Um, lot air freight's tough. So it's a bit of a challenge. But I have such an incredible team back in Sydney managing it, looking at it. We plan well in advance. So 
that's been great. Um, without that team, we wouldn't be able to manage. So again, it comes down to having the right people to help do the planning. And the forecasting has been difficult because we just don't know the volume. We don't know which fragrances are going to resonate the most with our consumer base here. So though there's a lot of guesswork involved, and that means we might have to hold extra stock here in the warehouse uh, in the U.S. than we planned. But we're okay with that. We're making the investment in this market. We're certainly excited about it. I'm excited about it. I mean, I've been away for a very long time, and I'm just so happy to be back here and getting to spend time in the U.S., which I love, and being with my family. So planning has been a big, big part of being ready. And the other weird thing that's happening is we are a Southern Hemisphere brand. So if you think about that, our summer is winter here and vice versa. So the rhythm of the launches are also different, which is helpful. Interesting. So pretty much you're saying when there might be a lull in the Southern Hemisphere, there might be a boom on the Northern Hemisphere? Is that what you mean? Well, no. Our summer, so our summer in Australia, the Australian summer is January. So we launch summer in January. Yeah. So we have it. And then we can forecast for the U.S. and send it here. Got it. If we had to send, if we had to do it any other way, from a raw material point of view, because we make everything— it would just be a logistical nightmare, even even for us, as big as we are. So that's kind of helpful because it allows us to do the planning a little bit easier. Got it. And so how what have you found from the U.S. consumer? What are the products they're glomming onto more? What is What channels have they been mostly purchasing on? Well, it's very interesting. So our dot-com has been the biggest so far, not Amazon. Um, which is what I expected. I also think what's also extremely interesting is the fragrance preferences are slightly different, but more, but but overall the same. And I did not expect that. I expected that some of the best sellers here would be completely different to those in Australia, and that's not what I'm seeing, which is fascinating. Interesting. Are they mo- interested in the same sort of types of products? Are do, is the the number one type of candle that in Australia the bestseller there the bestseller here? Like, or, or is it just you know? So so okay. So for example, we make this incredible scent called Ataha Affair, which is a caramel vanilla with almost a butterscotch sort of a note coming through, and it's not. It's a gourmand. But it's a fine gourmand. It's not quite as sticky as you'd expect to find some of these fragrances you'd find in an FMCG channel where you're smelling like, you know, apple spice cake and all these cakey, heady, big. It's not like that, but it's still a gourmand. And I thought there's no way that some that a, a, a American consumer is going to want a caramel vanilla candle when you can buy vanilla every place. I mean, where can't you get a vanilla candle? You could walk into the service station and get a vanilla candle in this market. And I just thought, no way are, are, are Americans going to love that product. And they do. They do. And another product we make, Kyoto and Bloom, it's an amber an amber fragrance. And it's also beautiful. Of course, I'm going to say everything's beautiful, but it is. <laughs> and... 
And it's really beautiful. And that is one of our top selling products, fragrances in Australia. And it's also the same here. So there's, so that's true. But then there's other fragrances like the Hamptons, which is sort of woody, mossy, and that is gorgeous, but it's not a huge seller in, 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 you know, the home, the home market, but here everyone loves it. Maybe it's because they know that what the Camptons are there. They're more well acquainted well, with the Hamptons. The, true, except the Australians are obsessed with Hampton-style decor. Okay, okay. And it's so funny because you go to these houses, and it's not really Hamptons, <laughs> and I hate to tell them. I, I try not to tell them, you know, it's not really. That's not what the Hamptons well, look like. That's, but anyway, that's what— the- <laughs> Your next business is bringing the real Hamptons to Australia. Um, yeah, maybe. So uh, we're r- almost running out of time, but I have a couple more questions. And one is just like— are you ever thinking if you, if things accelerate ramp up enough in the US, do you think you might bring production stateside here or do you think they'll always be all Australia made? That's a good question. Um one of the great benefits of being a manufacturer is that we control our process. We have a pr- proprietary wax that has taken us years to develop. I know that if I was to make the products here, I would probably be using or most likely be using a contract manufacturer because there's so many of them. And I am really worried about the conversion of that. And also, I also know that we would not be able to use or maintain our same wax product because the way that they work is they'll put the same wax in everybody's candle. So the the answer to that is yes, it's it's something we're thinking about. And look, the numbers will tell you when that is right because you'll get to a certain volume where sea freighting it over doesn't make sense anymore. And then what we'll probably do is start a factory here because we don't need to have a huge facility when we start off. We could get something and, you know, buy a few buy a few pieces of equipment and and make our own. We don't have to be set up like these huge contract manufacturers here if we're just making for ourselves. So that's kind of where we're leaning. But that's, you know, time will tell when when that happens. But we'll know. We'll know exactly when the time is right. And we'll start planning for that because it'll take it'll take a good year and a half probably to set all of that up. Absolutely. All right. And the, my last question is a bit of a zoomed out question, but it's more, you know, you started Glass House in 2005 when you saw a big gap in the market in Australia. Um, do you think such a gap still exists for other companies like in Australia? Is it still nascent in, in many opportunities where someone might be able to sort of capitalize in the way that you were? Or has that ship sailed 15 years later? I think uh, in the U- in the U.S., I feel like there is still a big gap for what we do, for sure. I know that sounds crazy with all the, the market here is so fragmented, but there aren't any brands. There's all these little, small candle makers or people making candles just that don't stand for anything. It's just, it's it's a commodity. It's just, do I like the smell of this? And they haven't had the time that we've had to put into creating the world's best candle. They really haven't. And that takes that takes a while. Okay. That's not something you can do right away. And in terms of Australia, brands, a lot of major brands that we know here, they've all come and gone because we own the market there. And the reason we do, we're we're not the best because we're the biggest. We're the biggest because we're the best. And we have broad distribution throughout Australia. That makes it very difficult 
for other brands to come in. And our customers are loyal and our retailers are loyal. And one of the reasons that they are is for that conversation we had earlier about, I didn't go and even if, to open a bunch of retail stores because we had distribution through, through them. All right. Well, Nicole, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Kale. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week.